G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. What are we doing today, young well, in today's episode, we're going to be talking about the blame game that happens between all the characters that we've been introduced to so far in the story. So last week, we had our reading about the woman being deceived by the serpent and her response to that deception, which culminated in the man also eating the fruit with her. God turns up and basically says, how come you're hiding? Did you do the thing that I said not to do? And the man is basically forced to admit that, yes, he did the thing. Not only did he and his wife individually do the thing, but they also tried to cover up the fact that they had done the thing. And that is not a good thing that they did. Yeah, that's a bad thing. And now we're at the point where the man is trying to explain to God whose fault it is that he did the thing. So let's read from Genesis chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now I'm a parent of three kids. I've noticed an interesting trend, which I'm sure is nothing new to any other parent who has ever lived. When I ask my youngest child, Why did you do the wrong thing? He says, He doesn't know. When I ask the middle child, Why did you do the wrong thing? He blames his little brother. When I asked the eldest child why she did the wrong thing, she said it just happened. It was totally an accident. Three different kids, three different responses. Not one of them will take responsibility for their own actions. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we must admit that most of the time this is us. Which one are you, Chris? I was definitely the classic oldest child. Yes, I was uh, I was definitely uh, the uh, classic uh, oldest child and had the similar response. And you know what? I am still the oldest child. Man-child, maybe, but still the oldest so your brothers didn't get older than you? No, they'll never catch up. So that's one thing I have going uh, for me. I see. Yep. Well, that's how time works. Right. <laughs> okay. The man in our story pushes the focus back first to the woman and then to God. It's the woman that you gave to me, he says. So listen here, God. She did this to me and it's your fault. And the text is very clear that the man knows exactly what's going on because we've already been told that he was right there with her when she took the fruit and ate it. And when he answers God, he actually doesn't use the terminology for fruit because in Hebrew it reads as she gave of the tree and I ate. He knows exactly where that fruit came from and he knows that he was told not to partake of it. Even by his own admission, he's literally without excuse. And yet the man sees fit to blame his wife. Mm, they should call him uh, Mr. Teflon. Nothing sticks to this guy. Yeah, space age technology. Looking at the text, we might be persuaded that the woman is at fault because she did give him the fruit and he did partake of it from her hand. But we need to pay more close attention to the question that was being asked. Have you eaten? Not how did it come about or who was responsible for engineering this situation in which there is a forbidden fruit in your mouth. Miss Hoover, can I have another crayon? My crayon got in my mouth and I ate it. Hey, Ralph. Uh, on you, God is not interested in the stories told by man. God is telling his story, and that is the function of Scripture. The man is supposed to say, yes, just yes. I ate the fruit. I did the thing after you said don't do the thing. But 
he can't do that because he's selfish like the rest of us and he's still trying, even in the face of the Lord God, who, as we said last time, has come searching for him in the spirit of the day of judgment and indignation and wrath to cover his own backside. It's not going to work. What does he think, that God's going to turn around and say, ah, oh, yeah, sorry about that, my bad. I should have realized that the woman was no good for you. She's a bad influence. Really? You think that after God's turned up in the storm of his fury that he's just going to turn around and go, oh, well, I see you have a reason. So, uh, yeah, okay, I guess there's nothing I can do about that. You got me there. I'll, I'll just go back to creating puppies and making the flowers bloom and not worry about upholding the word that I spoke to you when I created you to represent me. That was clearly a mistake on my part. No, God's not going to do that. But since we're playing games here, he's going to play along. So God turns his attention to the woman and asks her, what is this you have done? Okay, Adam, you said your piece, you had your opportunity to be honest, and you couldn't just face reality. So I'm going to see what kind of response I'll get from your wife. And when I finished asking questions, and you've all said your piece, then we'll get down to business. This is another one of those rhetorical questions that we should all understand as having a meaning beyond the words. Yeah, we had uh, one of those last week, I recall. The question, what have you done, doesn't mean, you know, tell me what you've been up to, but, but what does it really mean? It means you have just set in motion a course of events that will have serious consequences. Are you even able to comprehend, as God is, what will result from your actions? You really don't want to be the person that God asks. What have you done? No, this is the kind of question that only somebody in a superior position can ask you. This is a question from somebody who really does sit in a position of judgment and is not just misappropriating that position. This is a question you can ask when you really do have the knowledge of good and evil that is required to be the judge. And in this moment, the woman realizes that the deception is complete because she cannot answer God. She doesn't have the knowledge of good and evil. She doesn't sit in a position of judgment. She cannot vindicate herself in the courtroom of God, and she is not sitting on his counsel. She's standing before him, and all she can do is point the finger like her husband. Here we're reminded of the book of Job and the way that God questions him to see if Job has the wisdom of God. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Do you know where the animals have their homes? Can you control the forces of chaos? No, you don't know any of this. You're just a human. Clearly, you're not in a position to sit as judge over me. You don't even understand the implications of what you just did. So this would be a good time for you to shut your mouth. But again, the woman's just like her husband. She's got to point the finger. She can't own up and say, oh, yeah, okay, I did the thing. I know that I shouldn't have done it. Just because somebody told me that something that was different to what you said, I still don't have an excuse because ultimately I did the thing. But she just can't bring herself to do it. So the blame game continues. Yeah, and she says to God, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Yeah. This word translated here as deceived is very interesting. In the Hebrew, we find it as nashah, which is fairly consistently translated as deceived in most places where we find it. Now, I think that the word deceived does a pretty good job of summarizing what the Hebrew means in a single word. But to get a better understanding of it for English readers, we should probably flesh it out a little more. And I say that because we generally consider deception to be something more akin to lying or saying something that isn't true. Let's have a look at how the Bible uses this word. And we'll also look at similar forms derived from the same root to give us a more detailed assessment. And we have to remember that this is the kind of literary analysis we need to be doing for a text that is intended to be read aloud to a listening audience. Most people in biblical times couldn't read 
and their exposure to scripture was in the form of listening to the scrolls being read aloud in the temple or in the synagogue, as the case may be. So the sound of each word is important because it conveys more than just dictionary definition of a single word. It carries imagery that illustrates the broad semantic range of the original root, and that is what provides the fullness of meaning found within the text. In other words, if you're just reading this with your eyes, you're not getting the whole story. And if you're reading it in translation, as most of us do, then you're getting even less. So this Hebrew term, nashah, occurs in various places. And as you know, when I go through a bit of a word study here on the podcast, I like to be thorough and I like to include as many examples as I can. In this instance, there are quite a lot. So I'm not going to give you every single one of them, but you are welcome to do your own study on this. You can come back and listen to this after having done the study. And if you think that I'm misrepresenting the data here, you're welcome to get in touch with me and we'll talk about it. So here are a bunch of references where we find this exact term in use. And because the first one that we're going to look at regarding King Hezekiah comes up several times in various places, I've just got the one here, but you're welcome to look at all of them at your leisure. I'm just going to comment on some of these as we go through them. Second Kings 18.29. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. So in this first example, not counting Genesis 3, of course, because that is the one we're trying to interpret. We find that in this scenario, Hezekiah is being accused of giving the people a false sense of security in the face of certain destruction at the hands of enemies. And Isaiah 19 verse 13, the officials of Zoan have become fools. The leaders of Memphis are deceived. The cornerstones of her peoples have led Egypt astray. Okay, so there are three statements here and we're talking about foolishness and deception and being led astray. All three are parallel statements. So we need to consider that deception, as we find it here, is something very much like folly or being led astray. We're getting very strong vibes here of idle, mindlessness, futility, wasted effort. Jeremiah 4, verse 10. Then I said, Alas, sovereign Lord, how completely you have deceived this people and Jerusalem by saying you will have peace when the sword is at our throats. Now we have Jeremiah accusing God of deceiving people. So we need to tread carefully with how we interpret this. Are we calling God a liar or are we saying that God has allowed his people to have a sense of security in the face of calamity? We already saw that false sense of security reflected in an earlier use of the term. Jeremiah 23 verse 39. Therefore, I will surely forget you and cast you out of my presence along with the city I gave to you and your ancestors. You're thinking, what? Where? I didn't see deceive there. So we're still in Jeremiah. This time the same word is being translated as forget. We'll come back to this in a moment because I'm going to show you that there is a related term from this same root that means to forget or to cause to forget. Jeremiah 29 verse 8. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. So again, in Jeremiah, this time it's the prophets doing the deception and diviners as well. So there's an aspect of divination here, whether it be approved by God as through the prophets or contrary to God's will as seen in the diviners. And of course, we got that connection back to Genesis 3 verse 1 and the Nachash, the diviner. Jeremiah 37 verse 9. This is what the Lord says. Do not deceive yourselves, thinking the Babylonians will surely leave us. They will not. Oh, still in Jeremiah, this time the deception comes from within a person because they can deceive themselves. Again, there's this false sense of security. And Jeremiah 49, 16, the terror you inspire and the pride of your heart have deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks, who occupy the heights of the hill, though you build your nest as high as the eagles, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. 
So that was our last one from Jeremiah, where, again, it's the deception that comes from the heart that deceives the people. Now, Obadiah chapter 1, verse 7, All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. So a bit of Obadiah for a change, where this time it's friends and allies who deceive rather than enemies or the inward attitudes of the heart. We're going to have a look, as I mentioned a second ago, at this idea of forgetting associated with deception. But first, another related word which only turns up a couple of times and which is usually translated as to blow away or disperse. That word is nashab. Genesis 15 verse 11. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Psalms 147 verse 18, he sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. Isaiah 40 verse 7, the grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. So we've got a bit of an idea being illustrated in the use of this word where something light or delicate or fragile is easily displaced, so much so that a puff of wind can remove it from its position. Birds will flee when you scare them. Snow melts when it faces a warm breeze and flowers and leaves are easily swept away in the wind. So we're talking about futility. Which is awesome, but I thought you said we were also going to talk about forgetting. Hmm. I must have forgotten. Oh boy. Sorry about that little rabbit trail there. I guess I got carried away. If you're not smiling about that now, you might be later. Now, Shah also means to forget or cause to forget, as we're about to see in these examples. Genesis 41:51. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Job 11, verse 6, Disclose to you the secrets of wisdom. For true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. Isaiah 44, verse 21, Remember these things, Jacob, for you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you. You are my servant, Israel. I will not forget you. Jeremiah 23, verse 39. Therefore, I will surely forget you and cast you out of my presence along with the city I gave to you and your ancestors. In Lamentations chapter 3, verse 17. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. I did mention that I'm a father of three kids, didn't I? Just thought of that now for some reason. Anyway, this word which is practically identical to the word for deception is related in the sense that forgetting something is self-deception, albeit involuntary. When you forget about something, it still exists, but not in your mind. We also have another related word, which is to do with lending, especially to make a profit on the interest. This word is nasha. Nehemiah 5 verse 10, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. There are lots more examples of this word, but for the sake of brevity, I've just used this one. As I said, there's nothing preventing you from doing your own research on this. The important point to grasp here is that whenever there is some disconnection between truth and reality, there is some element of deception at play. Because we all love a good 90s reference, and we need to remember that reality bites. Reality is what you have to live with, regardless of what you've been telling yourself or what you accepted from other people. And reality is what God is concerned with, not the imaginations of men. Sorry, truthers. So we talked about a false sense of security that disappears once the reality of the situation sets in. We talked about forgetting. And of course, the problem with forgetting is that reality is going to cause you to remember eventually, 
and you will have to account for the missing data. We talked about lending money and how you tell yourself you're borrowing $100, but the reality is that you're paying back $120, so you've deceived yourself. We talk about the fleeting nature of snow or grass and the easily startled birds of prey that are here one moment and gone the next. These things give the illusion of being permanent until the slightest thing drives them away. The reality is they were never going to be around for long. And now I want to talk about yet another word derived from the same root, which means to get lifted and carried away. Or to literally or figuratively speaking, go to another place or to be where you are not, whether you're in your imagination or in terms of actual location. This is Nasa, and there are literally hundreds of applications of this term, which is a bit more tricky to interpret as you might have gathered from what I just said about it. And here is one that I think is reasonably clear, which illustrates the point that I'm about to make without too much explanation required. This is Ezekiel 38 verse 13. I have to throw in a little odd bit of King James. Sheba and Edam and the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lions thereof, shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil? You'll get other applications of this phrase where it will say something like, lift up your eyes and see such and such. And the idea there is to visualize something, to see it in your mind, to travel to another place figuratively or as we say in our modern English, to get carried away with the idea. And as we saw it used here in Ezekiel, sometimes that getting carried away is actually quite literally what happens to people and their stuff, especially in the context of exile. Now, I know this has been a lot of words, studying a lot of scripture and hopping back and forth all over the Bible to try and make the point that I'm about to make, but I think I just dropped the biggest hint ever, which is what the author of Genesis 3 is doing as well, and that is to connect the misrepresentation of reality by the serpent with the exile of the people in the garden. You will never get that reading a translation, I promise you. You certainly won't. Uh, so I guess this all boils down to a perception of things that sound like truth, but is actually different from reality. Uh, and eventually, you know, reality will require that we have to deal with it. Yeah, that's right. So when the woman says to God that the serpent deceived her, there's a lot more at play than just being a little bit misleading. And many people will jump to use a term like lying, but that's really not what's going on here at all. The serpent has told her the truth in a way that warps her sense of reality. He's used the technicalities of the language against her so that the idea she had in her mind was far from the reality that she would soon experience. The serpent gave the woman a false sense of security when he said, you will not surely die, because he used literal death instead of functional death to confuse her. He gave her the fleeting illusion of long-lasting prosperity when he told her about the knowledge that she would receive, knowing full well that her enjoyment of that knowledge would only be momentary before the voice of God calling in the garden would blow it all away. He caused the woman to forget the instruction that had been handed down to the humans from the mouth of God concerning the tree of knowledge of good and evil, only to be reminded of it by the sound of the Lord God approaching. The serpent misled the woman into believing that her efforts would yield a certain reward. He told her that her eyes would be opened, when in fact, the cost of her action was far greater than she had anticipated, like a lender taking advantage of a naive borrower. All she would see with her newly opened eyes is nakedness, the need for something that she previously didn't lack. And the serpent carried her away with delusions of grandeur, when he told the humans that they would be as gods, which were quickly dashed, 
and replaced with exiles from the garden. So being carried away in the mind resulted in being carried away from the garden. Yeah. And this, all, all of this is our biblical definition of deception. And I brought all of that up because it's now time to address the elephant in the room for all you conspiracy theorists who might be listening, and that includes the Flat Earth crowd as well. You might be wondering what I'm talking about, but it's safe to say that if you know, you know. I'm talking about the North American Space Administration. Now, you might think that was a bit of a non-sequitur. If you're travelling in these circles, you've probably heard it before. There's a growing number of people out there in internet land who actually believe that the North American Space Administration was abbreviated to NASA just so that they could use a Hebrew word, which apparently means lies, as the name of their organisation. And they did that because they want to be deceptive, so they put the truth out there in plain sight. Yeah, that's right. They, they don't even hide it anymore. Okay, you, you can stop laughing now. On the other hand, if you're not laughing and you want to write me a sternly worded email in all caps, please go ahead. It's giantanswers at outlook.com. And don't worry, I've got plenty of room in the junk folder for that. So in case I haven't already made it really violently obvious, the word that is used for deception in the Bible is not NASA. It's Nasha. Sounds different. Spelled different, comes from an entirely different alphabet and language group, means something entirely different, and is used in completely different contexts. Unfortunately, it's really hard to convince people who are fixated on a worldview completely oriented around 1950s science fiction and conspiracy theories that there are other ways to view reality, and their own view is in fact the minority paradigm. It's a minority view now, it didn't even exist a couple of generations ago. It's really not a thing outside of the US. I don't know what else to tell you. If you can't see how the North American Space Administration in the 20th and 21st centuries has absolutely nothing to do with Hebrew language from the 6th century BC in the Middle East, I just, uh, uh, I, I can't even, whatever. <laughs> it's uh, one small step for man, one giant leap away from logical thinking. Yep. You said it, brother. Let me just wrap it up by saying that the chances of American scientists who are primarily interested in the exploration of outer space taking the time to specifically name their organization so that it makes an acronym that uses some similar letters to a transliteration of a word from an obscure ancient Near Eastern religious text are infinitesimally small. And yet, the likelihood of that bears a striking resemblance to the likelihood that ancient Jewish scribes invented a language that, when written down on paper, would intentionally foreshadow the abbreviated name of an allegedly corrupt scientific organisation in a part of the world that they knew nothing about and which spoke a language which hadn't yet been invented, so that there would be a subtle mechanism in place for hinting at this alleged corruption without directly admitting it. Oh, totally plausible. I'm, I'm sure you all agree. And why would they uh, do all this? It sounds like a lot of hard work. Because even though the shape of the earth meant absolutely nothing to the biblical writers who never addressed that subject in literal terms at all, somehow, according to this worldview, they seem to know that it would be the defining element of truth in the 21st century in the minds of people who are reading an English Bible translation and taking it far too much like literal science while they watch far too much YouTube and smoke far too much weed. The whole worldview makes no sense. You can't read scripture with a scientific mindset and yet reject the science that actual scientists are doing just because you're trying to defend a bad understanding of scripture from good science. 
Like I've said many times before, the only way to do this is to meet a good understanding of science with a good understanding of scripture. And if you can manage that, you'll find there's no need to defend anything. But for us as Bible-believing Christians, it starts with a close reading of scripture. And if you're still interested in science after that, it's not going to disturb your theology. And the reason for that is that the author of scripture is the author of reality. And he's telling a consistent story. And what a great story it is. And this is uh, another um, reminder why people need to go to church. You know, when you go to church, you have a community of believers, you are accountable for your beliefs. You are confronted with the reality of the word of God. It helps keep you humble and grounded. It's and, uh, a great way to learn. Yeah, yeah. But unfortunately, a lot of this crowd won't go to church because they believe the churches are corrupt because conspiracy. If I roll my eyes any harder, I'm going to get a headache. Let me make this abundantly clear. Either you are a part of the body of Christ or you are not. And if you don't identify with the community of the faithful followers of Christ and participate in the function of the body of Christ with them, then there is a frighteningly real chance that Jesus Christ is not going to identify with you when he returns. Never mind the so-called truth. I'm using air quotes when I say that. We all need to make sure that we're engaged with reality. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. Now time for some giant questions. Um, so this question came from Tim, um, another one, who is a member of the Fallen Angels and Nephilim group on Facebook. Now, it is a bit lengthy. I'm going to attempt to read it out, and I'll probably mispronounce all these words, but uh, I am presuming your forgiveness. Okay. Having watched the latest episode of Unraveling Revelation and Doug Hant's interview with Michael Heiser on the Awakening Report, August 25, 2020, I've been pondering several questions regarding the fall of the Elohim. Now, I'd acknowledge the theory I've come up with is purely speculative, but I'm interested in your views as to whether I'm in the ballpark or totally out in left field. My theory is this. At the time of the initial fall of the Elohim, there was not one chief rebel prince that led the rebellion, but a council or coalition of Elohim. These Elohim later presented themselves to humanity as the creator gods, Anu, El, etc., the storm gods, Baal, Anil, Zeus, etc., and the fertility goddess, Inanna, Astarte, Ishtar, Diana, etc. Uh, in the Old Testament, we were told of the Nakash in Eden, the Watchers on Mount Hermon, with specific mention of Semjaza and Azizel, all involved in aspects of rebellion. This poses the question Is there one leader of the rebellion, or numerous, and did a civil war take place amongst the rebels in order that there be one prince that the others were forced to submit to. One reason I came to this view is that in all the ancient religions of the Near East, there seems to be a civil war that took place leading to the storm god overthrowing the creator god. Now, besides the obvious that this is depicting the overthrow of Yahweh, is it also possible this is referring to a rebellion within their own ranks? When you look at Genesis 3, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, it would appear those passages are speaking of separate individual entities. In Deuteronomy 32, nations are divided up amongst the Elohim, but not to a specific ruler to govern overall. And in Daniel, we're taught about the Prince of Persia, which implies he governed within that territory in his own right. To me, this gives the appearance the Elohim that initially rebelled were in equal standing. 
also in Psalm 82, when Yahweh pronounced judgment on the gods, there was not a focus on a particular leader, but all at the infernal council. Furthermore, scripture states that upon Azizel rests the sin of the whole world and not Satan. So rather than Satan, as personified by Jesus, being the leader of the rebellion from the beginning, he fought and ascended to that position over time. I should say here too that I've come to the conclusion that the the cash of Genesis 3 and Satan spoken of by Jesus are the same entity. Also, in Western theology, we assume there was one fall of Elohim before creation, but is it possible there has been numerous falling of Elohim over time where allegiances have changed? Phew, a long but fascinating question. A lot of questions there, a lot of content, and a lot of interesting stuff. So uh, I guess we'll just uh, creep through and address each point as we come to it. We'll start with the question of whether there were numerous Elohim in charge rather than a single leader overall in what some call the infernal council of the, the bad guys. This one's a fairly easy point to address because all we could say about it is that the Bible does not refute the idea of some kind of a coalition of the divine bad guys. However, the Bible also stops short of presenting this group as any kind of organized or hierarchical structure. So we have no reason to suggest that there's only the one big bad guy at the top and also no reason to suggest that there's any kind of organization. That leads on to the idea of internal struggles or civil war, if you want to use that kind of terminology, amongst these fallen Elohim. And I would suggest that it is entirely possible, and to be honest, I think it's quite likely, that these power struggles are going on all the time behind the scenes wherever we find human conflict on regional or national scales. Things get a lot harder to define when we start talking about individuals mentioned in scripture or in other literature from the pagan nations concerning the identity of various gods and goddesses. That's because the connection between a god over here and a god over there might just come down to similarities in language groups or certain attributes of the gods as imagined by their human followers, according to a kind of template that may be common to many people groups. For example, everybody's got to eat, so it makes sense that one of the gods in the region is god of grain or fish or whatever, and other people are going to have gods for the same purpose because they need to eat too. Everyone's got weather, so everyone needs weather gods. If the language is similar between those people groups, then the name of that god might even be similar between the two regions. Remember, names are usually functional. Okay, so it's not about personal names necessarily. We need to be thinking about function and the roles that these entities play with relation to the people. The gods are often anthropomorphized and as such they display many common human character traits should we be surprised that a god worshipped by one people group has a similar disposition or similar characteristics to a god of another people group well, not really so these factors throw some confusion into the question of whether we are able to actually trace the movement of a god from one people group to another as an example of the difficulty to be able to clarify this issue you'd have to be able to show how certain texts that imply a common identity between two gods of different names should be correctly understood. Are they actually claiming that the two names belong to the same entity, or is the claim being made one of perhaps a functional equivalence? In other words, are they just saying these two guys are both storm gods in their respective regions, as opposed to these are two names for the same storm god? So we need to be careful that we're not too quick to assume a common identity for gods of different names just on the basis of certain attributes. That's a fair point, and there really is a lot that we don't know about all of this. You know, the Bible is about our God, not everyone else's. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Getting into the issue of ascent myths or the young god overthrowing his father motif, which we find with Baal and Zeus and others. We do actually find that in the Bible, but of course it's nothing to do with Jesus, who shows us the perfect model of submission to the will of the Father. It is, in fact, the Isaiah 14 passage, which refers to the famous I will statement. If the name Hillel is correctly understood as a variant on Enlil, as some commentators such as Doug Hamp and Derek Gilbert have speculated, and I'm inclined to agree with them on that point, then we have an instance of Enlil taking the role of the rebellious son attempting to overthrow his heavenly father. But in this scenario, he does not succeed, unlike the ascent myths of the pagans. Regarding the issue of leadership and how many leaders there might be among the fallen Elohim, we should note that it's not in biblical text that we find this notion, but in material that developed out of the Old Testament, such as First Enoch. According to that book, the watchers that descend upon Mount Hermon were organized in ranks, with two individuals that appear to be at the top of the hierarchy, above 20 groups of 10 watchers, each having a leader of its own. There is some ambiguity, and it's possible that the top two may actually be one and the same entity by different names. Also, there is some ambiguity around the idea of Azazel being given the blame for all of the sin in the world. I think a better reading of the text is one in which Azazel is seen to be responsible not for all sin, but for the particular sin that is the Mount Hermon event. You do have some translations that will say something like, ascribe to Azazel all sin, where others say, ascribe to him the whole crime. And in the context of the narrative, that really does change what we think about this idea of the particular entity being responsible for all the evil in the world. And I guess that leads us to the question of Satan and whether he is, in fact, the one responsible for all the sin in the world. Yeah, yeah. Now, now if you've been following this podcast through the course of the current season, you'll be aware that it is my position that the self-centered inclination of humans is a major factor in the introduction of sin into the world. However, the role of the serpent in the eventuality of sin cannot be ignored. And I think that the best way to read the situation is to see the deception that the serpent engineers as a trap for the woman as the first willful act of rebellion against God because the inclination of the humans did not result in disobedience until the deception had taken hold. That's an important thing to remember because it's for that reason alone that mankind can even be thought of as capable of resisting sin or engaging in genuine repentance. But we're still left with the question of whether we can identify any of the fallen Elohim that the Bible mentions as unique entities in their own right, or perhaps as different names for a smaller number of entities. For example, we can't really say whether Azazel is the same as Satan, or whether Ashur is the same as Enlil. I realize that lots of people have endeavored to make those connections, but none of them are rock solid for the reasons I've presented just now, among others. One option to consider, which I present in my book, answers the giant questions, is that perhaps all of these combined forces of evil are represented in Scripture as a single chaotic entity known as Leviathan. In that scenario, my reading of the book of Job indicates that the Leviathan may actually be the same entity referred to as the Satan. I go on to suggest that the Satan in Job is later known as Satan. We need to remember that just because an entity is referred to in functional terms, that doesn't mean that their actual name doesn't reflect that function. This interpretation presents Satan not as the leader of all divine rebels, but as a kind of representative of all of them. Remember that Genesis 3, in which we're introduced to the serpent, later identified as Satan, is an archetypal story in which the man and the woman represent all of us. It makes sense, then, to view the serpent as the archetypal divine rebel. 
meaning that he represents all of them, not just one. And that representation does not necessarily imply leadership. Having said that, there is little question whether these divine rebels are in some kind of a power struggle or turf war in an attempt to dominate the world. I think it's quite obvious that that is the case. And there is some scriptural evidence to suggest that the Assyrian, for example, or Ashur, was one of the first major players here. Let's look at Genesis 10 for a start and then all the connections between Assyria and Egypt as you go through scripture. You can say the same about every major empire that has risen over the years. And I mean, the book of Daniel, as uh, was mentioned in the question, great example. And the last question to address here, I guess, has to do with the idea of a divine rebellion prior to creation week. Yeah, this one comes up a lot. I won't spend a lot of time on this because I have covered it in some detail back in the early episodes of the podcast in season one. Basically, there are only two main reasons people push for a divine rebellion prior to creation week. One is because they see this war in heaven in Revelation 12. They can't see how it fits anywhere else. And there's some need to have it occur before Genesis 3 so that we don't have to put the responsibility for sin on the humans. Uh, Anyone who's been following this podcast for any length of time should be able to see right through these arguments. Uh, And to address the Revelation 12 situation, I'm going to recommend that our listeners search for the material put out by Dr. Michael Heiser on this issue specifically. Heiser argues that Revelation 12 depicts a sign in the heavens, which is a celestial portent of the advent of Jesus Christ. And the battle that ensues in the heavens as a result of his advent is the war in heaven. That means that it occurred during the time of Christ and not prior to creation. Again, I'll refer you to Dr. Heiser to explain the finer points of his argument there. The other reason for a pre-creation fall is an attempt at harmonizing an old earth with the young earth creationist worldview. You get an old earth that looks old, just like the science is telling us, but you still get to rebel against Darwinian science and have your Bishop James Usher 17th century literalist chronology and your 6,000-year-old creation. Sounds like the best of both worlds, right? Sounds like uh, having a cake and also eating the cake. Yes, but the point is that the text of Scripture does not support a divine rebellion prior to the creation week, which makes that whole enterprise a waste of time anyway. In fact, it takes us right back to the whole bad science meets bad Bible reading problem. It sounds great until it doesn't work in the real world, and that's just it. It doesn't work. Now, God actually does operate in reality, not just in our theologically driven pseudoscience and The sooner we all get on board with that, the sooner we can devote our resources to the mission Jesus gave us, which was to argue about the shape of the planet. I mean, uh, to go and make disciples of all nations. Amen, brother. Time to say goodnight. Thank you for listening, everybody, once again. We'll catch you next week. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant questions we're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on amazon or goodreads to help it become more visible in search results even if you just give it stars that'll help but a full review is certainly really appreciated please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show in the future we want to be talking about your stories as well not just our own so if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience we want to hear from you and we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful of course this podcast comes out every week but you want to make sure you never miss an episode so if you haven't already subscribed do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops that's all we have time for today We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a 
production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, GravesForsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions by DJ Stephanie on Amazon. Paperback and Google Check out the other podcasts at RavenCreekSC.com. Read the blog and have us on socials. Don't forget to subscribe to the friends of the show. Send us all your questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Yes, me too. Um, yeah. You've got your mood lighting on. Yeah, yes. Mood lighting. I'm in the mood. The lighting? Let's let's do this while I'm in the mood. Okay. Um, hey, so I'm always in the mood. Talk Good. about nerdy Bible things. Good day, folks, and welcome. All right. I've got to be careful when oh. I say folks. Okay. Jeez, I spoke over you. Sorry. No, that's okay. All right. All good? I'm going to have a look at... Uh, oh, yeah. just realised I didn't do a little intro thing. I just sort of launched into the question. Oh, that's okay. What well, what do we normally say? Thanks for listening, and now it's time to... What have we got yes, today? Mm. Uh, there's a crying baby in my background. I don't know if you can hear it. Um, uh, okay. Deuteronomy 32. Nations were divided up amongst the Elohim, but not... Oh, boy. Hang on. <laughs> that's going so well. My, my thumb moved too fast. Okay. So close. You can do this. Say on target. Come on, red leader. Stay okay. on target. Stay <laughs> on target. They came from behind. <laughs> so rather than Satan as personified by Jesus, what? Um, so, I think that means that Jesus referred to Satan as a personal entity, whereas prior to that time, nobody was talking about Satan like that was his name. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. The uh, perils and pitfalls of trying to coordinate these things uh, around the world. Yeah. The globe. Indeed. Different time zones that occur due to the rotation of a globe. Oh, not our globe, though. We don't, we don't live on a globe. We live on a disc. Well, I'm still not sure how we get different time zones on a disc. The time is imaginary. It's just a construct made by man. Yeah, well, I was I was uh, chatting with some uh, uh, Americans this morning. Oh yes. Uh, they said it was seven p.m. Uh, the day before, while it was nine a.m. for me. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. Um, yeah. So and, and I know when I went yeah, to San Diego I, a couple of times, and I like I lost a day and then gained a day. I was like, yeah, it's very weird. Yeah, and, and I'm just like. Wait a minute, you're telling me that every person that I casually talk to on the other side of the world somehow knows that they have to lie to me about the time so that I'm deceived into this globe thing. Right? Like, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, about the time zones. Is this, so is that what flat <laughs> earthers believe, that we're all in one time zone or something? I, I don't know. I don't even care. No. But I'm just like... Yeah. It, it just... It unravels pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
That's okay. We'll all be dead in a few years anyway, so it's fine. We'll yeah, well, you know, once the um, once the elite cabal of uh, devil worshipping serpents who eat children uh, reduces the population of the world to 500 million in the next eight years, uh, oh, we'll probably be okay. gone. So we won't have to worry about the conspiracy theories anymore. It's true. Well, there you go. Something to look forward to. <laughs>